The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? Things were just coming out of my mouth in a way that I think it really made people really scared of me. Uh, it first started with my school teachers, then it started with parents of the other um, you know, kids that I was friends with. And I started realizing that everyone was talking about the birthday party they got to experience last weekend and I wasn't invited. Or, you know, there's another birthday coming up and I would ask the kid on the playground, like, you know, am I gonna be able to go to your birthday and celebrate your birthday? And then they're like, my mom said you can't come. I realized at that point, and it brings emotions back to me. I mean, I can feel that. I feel like the part of me that wants to cry right now because I mean, I feel for that kid, that part of me that felt lonely and and completely isolated. And I, I already felt lonely and isolated because of the color of my skin. And then I added another element onto it, feeling lonely and isolated because I felt things and said things that made other people uncomfortable. And I thought it was normal. And then I realized I was living in a world where people were just not, they're not seeing. And that was, I think, was the most challenging for me is understanding how come people can't see what's in front of them. That was a quick clip from this week's episode with Shaman Durek. I actually wasn't going to air this one for a couple of weeks, but after Marley's episode last week, it really felt like this one just tied it with a bow. I came across Shaman Durek's book at the beginning of this whole shutdown. It was suggested to me on Audible. When I say spirit hacking quite literally changed my life, it really, really did. It has created amazing and profound transformations in my life in just the few short months since I've read it. I'm so grateful that Shaman Durek decided to join us on Recovering from Reality. In this week's episode, we're diving into his incredible experiences that he's had on his shamanic path, one of which includes actually dying physically. And we're also talking about what we talk about so often on this podcast, which is turning pain into purpose. And at certain points, he even gives me some pushback. And I'm grateful for that because ultimately it led to a really incredible shift in my perspective and a profound healing moment for me. I hope that you guys have as many major takeaways from this episode as I did. And so with that, here's this week's episode with Shaman Durek. Ever heard that saying, let thy food be thy medicine? Well, that certainly is truth. 
What if I told you that you could get high quality organic non-GMO groceries delivered to your door for a lot less than what you're paying for now and help out a family in need? That's what I'm doing since I discovered Thrive Market. As a proud Thrive Market member, I get the products I love and my paid membership provides a free one for someone in need, like a low-income family, teacher, veteran, or first responder. Thrive Market tailors to over 70 different diets and values like paleo, keto, and plant-based. Delivering the highest quality organic non-GMO food, they also offer clean beauty and bath products, pet staples, and non-toxic cleaning products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. I love Thrive Market because the app makes it super easy for me to just type in paleo and then drop all of my favorites into my basket with ease. Bonus, it's delivered straight to my door. It's that easy. Not only do I feel great about getting a deal on my favorite clean organic products, but I also feel great about helping to support families who need it most. In addition to membership matching, Thrive Market is matching donations to their COVID-19 relief fund dollar for dollar. Thrive Market is working right now 24-7 to make sure members get their groceries delivered as fast as possible. You can learn more about their commitments to their customers and membership matching on their website. Try Thrive Market and become a member risk-free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash reality. Join today and you'll get up to $20 in shopping credits towards your first order. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E, market.com slash reality to start your risk-free membership and to get up to $20 towards your first order. thrivemarket.com slash reality. From the offices of Create and Cultivate, I'm Jacqueline Johnson, and this is Work Party, a podcast for working women that support each other's successes. In each episode, we bring in leading female powerhouses for career, real talk, and BS-free advice. Ready to create and cultivate the career of your dreams? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. Okay, as far as I can remember, I was about three years old when I first saw Spirit. I was about one day, I I remember it was like a mid-afternoon, the sun was going down, and uh, I was in my crib, in my room, and I saw the spirits always showing up and coming in and looking over the crib and smiling at me. And sometimes it would be a woman on the floor who would be drawing symbols and looking up at me and telling me to remember them. And, you know, and so that was my first encounter, I would say, at three years old. And I I think after my mom had left my parents' divorce when I was about three and a half, it was more apparent to me that these things that I was seeing were happening um, a lot more regularly. And I started to see spirits all the time, everywhere I went, down the street, uh, with standing next to other people. And, um, and I started to engage them, you know, asking them questions. Why are they here? And so forth. And they would tell me, you know, I'm her grandmother. I'm looking over her or I'm, I'm a friend of the family. And I, I sometimes visit them and, you know, just different things. And then when I was in kindergarten, going into elementary school, because in kindergarten, it was very challenging. It was just me understanding that the, the way things go, you know, you, you, you do all these art things and you learn how to put blocks in different shapes and then you go and take little naps and everything. And 
But when I got into elementary school is when it really started to dawn on me that I was not like everyone else. I begin to feel sensations of cold and hot sensations all all the time coming through me at different times. I would um, hear voices speaking to me about the people around me. When they would say something, I would hear voices say that they were lying and not telling the truth or that they are hiding something and they would start telling me what they were hiding. Uh, One situation was one of my teachers was arguing uh, with someone um, in class uh, about something that they didn't do. She was really upset about it. And when I say arguing, she was just being a little aggressive in the way she was being. To me, that's arguing and uh, very defensive to this other student. And I remember just saying out loud that, you know, you don't need to take the fight that you had with your husband the night before on us kids, you know, and things were just coming out of my mouth in a way that I think it really made people really scared of me. Uh, it first started with my school teachers, then it started with parents of the other, um, you know, kids that I was friends with. And I started realizing that everyone was talking about the birthday party they got to experience last weekend and I wasn't invited. Or, you know, there's another birthday coming up and I would ask the kid on the playground, like, you know, am I going to be able to go to your birthday and celebrate your birthday? And then they're like, my mom said you can't come, you know, and I realized, I realized at that point, um, and it brings emotions back to me. I mean, I can feel that. I feel like the part of me that wants to cry right now, because I mean, I feel for that kid, that part of me that felt lonely and and completely isolated. And I, I already felt lonely and isolated because of the color of my skin. And then I added another element onto it, feeling lonely and isolated because I felt things and said things that made other people uncomfortable and I thought it was normal. And then I realized I was living in a world where people were just not, they're not seeing. And that was, I think was the most challenging for me is understanding how come people can't see what's in front of them? How come they can't hear the tree that's telling them things? How come they can't feel the wind give them messages of what's going on? And um, so I spent a lot of time alone. And my father used to always say to me like, oh, that's normal. I, that, that was the way for me too, because of growing up in this type of family. and you know, you don't really need anyone. All you need is your family. And, you know, but even though he would say that, I still felt sad. I still, you know, felt lonely because I, all the friends and everyone that I knew was always getting together and doing things and having sleepovers. And I wasn't allowed to, you know, and my dad wouldn't allow me to. My dad was very cautious about people putting curses and spells on us. And, you know, he always would mark our clothes with our names on the labels to make sure that we came back with the same jacket that we left the house in. And he would check our pockets upon arriving from any friend's house. If there was ever a time that I was at a friend's house and it was always to see if someone put something in our pockets to bring home to hurt our family. So I was living in a very different world and then having a father who was, you know, partially wanting to fit into normal society and then also being brought up in that very shamanic tradition in our family. And then how do I associate myself between the two of having a father who one day say it's okay and another day he's not saying it okay that it's okay for me to be me so um you know that went on for a while and then I got to a point where as when I got into junior high I just gave up I was like I'm always alone so I'm gonna I'm gonna relish in this alone this loneliness and really find what this space this empty space feels like for me and how I can fill it in with magic and with, with movement and, and, and rituals and offerings and, you know, and really make that space mine where no one can come in and like 
it's my magical lair. And so my dad built me this beautiful magical lair in the bottom part of our downstairs part of our house where I had my friend come in and make the room like half of the characters in there on one side were like all the bad characters from all the Disney things. And the other side were all the good ones. And in the middle was like Fern Gully and like the, and the split between the two worlds. And I had shelves and shelves of herbs and all types of things that I could go in there and just practice my skills as a shaman. And then also talking to family members who were also helping me to cultivate that as well. And then I got to a point where friends started realizing that things I was saying was happening, uh, things that I predicted were happening, things that they were feeling was real for them. And, and they started to inquire. At first it was inquiring and seeing me more like a joke. And then it became more like I really interested and I started becoming very popular. And as I moved on, um, I realized that the institution of school wasn't for me. So I, I really left school in junior high about seventh. Uh, no, wait, was it junior high? I was junior high, I was eighth. Okay, I can't even remember which one grades it is anymore. Uh, whatever those grades are in junior high, where you go from one thing to the next thing. At somewhere in the middle, I was done. And I just told my dad, I, I can't be a part of this institution. It doesn't support me. It doesn't enlighten me. It doesn't make me, it, all it makes me do is feel codependent that I have to learn all these things to support a system that I don't really necessarily agree with. Yeah. So did you, where did you grow up? I grew up in Foster City and Hawaii. So between two, we had we we had places in both places. So we'd go back and forth in the mainland and then um, in Oahu. Um, and you know, for me, the I think the real situation for me was about being able to get into a space of knowing me outside of what everyone thinks I should be. And then as I got older, I started cultivating it so clearly within myself. I made a decision that I didn't care if people were going to laugh at me and make fun of me or think I'm a freak or I'm a weirdo. I quite enjoyed being the freak and the weirdo. I quite enjoyed being different and really being able to ground myself into that space. And all of a sudden I became the most popular kid at school and everyone's asking me for potions and things that they can take home and, and use to bring certain things in their life. And and then teaching them as well, different friends of mine to this day who are amazing healers, teaching them what I know and really being able to pass that on. And it was so I started, you know, going around the world and meeting with other different uh, spiritual people from all walks of life, from monks to, you know, to gurus, to other shamans, to people to kind of learn their way. And then also religion as well, which was very fascinating for me to dive full head first into religion. And became like went to Christian school and got into really understanding the Bible and reading all of the, the Proverbs and the book of Acts and Genesis and just basically the whole Bible. And then going to Israel and living with a religious family and learning about the Torah and the Talmud. And then moving to Turkey and learning about the, the Mevlana, the whirling dervishes and the Sufi way. And then in training myself and having my friend read to me the Quran, it's the way he interpreted it from his language in Turkish and then learning Turkish to be able to start understanding how to speak and writing a book in Turkey. Uh, it took me two years to write with the help of my friend, Amut, who helped me to cultivate this book at a time where no one wanted to publish the book because I was American. And they were thinking, who the hell are you to write a book in, in our country? And we're a Muslim and you're not Muslim. And where do you get off? And I was like, I have to write this book to remind you that your roots come from shamanism. So it was all of these things. And then also having my experience in Delphi, where I found out about that because of this guy who was a hypnotherapist who hypnotized me, which I didn't believe in hypnotherapy. 
and played a tape and said that I was the Oracle of Delphi and I had to return to Delphi. And I went to Delphi because his parents took me there because they were so impressed that they heard that I was the Oracle. And, um, and when I got there, I knew what everything was. And when I got there, they told me, you're going to die a very horrible death. And it's interesting because I've gone to so many palm readers in my life, um, just out of fun and curiosity of just like how the gypsies like to read palms. I find gypsies very interesting and beautiful and unique in their own way. And they always said to me, you have two lives. In your first life, you're going to suffer and go through a lot of pain. And then your second life is when you're going to be where you're going to become a person who's going to lead the world into a new paradigm. And I was like... What do you mean I have a second life? And it's like, you have a second life, you're going to die and it stops and you're going to come back and then your next life is going to start. And so that's what I was told by the Oracle in Delphi, which matched up with the palm readings that I had. So I thought, my goodness, this is, uh, you know, this is really interesting. I thought it would be like a spiritual death. Like you're just going to have this spiritual death and you're going to wake up like everyone does every day because we're always dying. How many times have we died and become something new and reinvented ourselves? But it wasn't. And... I remember being in the jungle in Belize, working with this medicine woman and training with her. And she said, you are who you are already. Like you have everything you need. You just haven't fully committed to it, but you're going to leave the jungle and you're going to return back to LA and you're going to die a horrible death. And it's through your death is when you're going to decide if you choose to come back and be a part of this world, or you're going to stay in the spirit world. And I'm like, well, do you know what choice I'm going to make? She goes, you'll only make it. The choice hasn't been yet decided. It's, it's up to you. And that's exactly what happened. The moment I got back from the jungle, it was maybe a month out. I woke up in the morning in my bed and there was this spirit that had like, uh, you know, just very kind of like almost like a staticky body, very like dark um, static energy and said, are you ready, child of light? And I was like, Yes. And it just reached into my body and I felt this excruciating pain. And I just was like screaming on the top of my lungs, jumped out of bed and fell down to the floor and started reaching for my phone to call my friend to come and get me. And he came with his truck and picked me off the ground, put me in his truck and was driving me to the hospital. And as he was driving me, all I felt was my body smashed towards the dashboard in his car. And then I woke up and I said, what happened? Because I blacked out. And he said, you've been having a seizure. The ambulance is on its way to take you out. And I pulled the truck over and uh, I've just been holding you. And you've just been going through seizure after seizure. And um, the ambulance came, put me in a, uh, one of those uh, gurney type things with the, and put like um, cloth and foam and stuff on both sides. So I went and smashed into the sides and I was having one seizure after the next. And I remember the ambulance looking at me and I was like, am I going to die? And he's like, well, we're getting you to the hospital as quick as we can. I said, what happened to me? He said, you have, you've been having rolling seizures. And um, I've never had a seizure before. So I never knew what a seizure felt like. So I was like, oh, this is what a seizure feels like. How fascinating. He goes, are you always like that? Looking at life as if it's some kind of interesting experiment that you're going through? I'm like, pretty much. He goes, that's very interesting. He goes, I've never experienced anyone say something like that before. I was like, well, I've never had one. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Osea Malibu, the original plant-based results-driven skincare line. Y'all know I'm obsessed with skincare. You guys DM me all the time asking me, what are you putting on your skin? And if you've been a long-time listener to this podcast, then you know it's Osea Malibu. Osea puts your health and the health of our planet first with potent skin and body solutions that are pure, safe, and effective. Osea stands for the elements of wellness, ocean, sun, earth, and atmosphere. Their entire line is built on these four pillars and pulls from botanical sources around the world to create products that are truly effective. Each product is infused with sustainably sourced organic Patagonian seaweed and active botanicals that create a nutrient and mineral-rich bioavailable base. This pure and potent base allows for the products to easily absorb into your skin and effectively bring about balance while targeting signs of aging and skin imperfections. I am personally such a big fan of all of their products in their line. I keep on my bedside table the anti-aging body balm and the Indaria Argan Oil, which I put on my skin every night religiously before bed. I use their Blemish Balm daily, which smells like a spa, and the Vegas Nerve Oil on the back of my neck in the morning really makes me feel so calm and prepared for the rest of the day. This is a female ran company. It's a family of women that were inspired by the sea. Osea formulates botanical powered product that have shown proven results for all skin concerns. If you're in the LA area, stop by Osea Venice Skincare Studio for a facial that will bring forth your inner glow with personal skin consultations, customized facials, and in-house expert estheticians. Stop in to speak to one of the Osea specialists about the best products for you and your long-term skincare goals. Go to oseamalibu.com forward slash recovering for $10 off your first purchase at $50 or more. Free shipping for US orders over $75 and free samples with every order. It's so funny because when my daughter was eight days old, I had three blood clots in my lung and I was dying. And three different doctors were like, it's just breastfeeding pain. You're fine. It's just breastfeeding pain. You're fine. And I went to urgent care. And the woman wrote me a prescription for physical therapy, but I couldn't breathe. And I felt like I was literally suffocating. And I remember walking into the ER holding my eight-day-old baby. And I put chest pain in the like little thing that they have in the triage. And this young female doctor, and she was like glowing. Like I, I just knew she was the one that was going to help me. Rushed me back for a CT scan. And when she came back, she goes, you're dying. You have three blood clots in your lung. And had you waited another minute, you probably would have died. And my exact words is, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> that was literally, <laughs> yeah. my exact words were like, oh, okay. There's a choice. You freak out, right? Or you're like, this is a very weird part of my life right now. Yeah. And Absolutely. there's a lesson here. You know, I... People always think it's bizarre that I, when I talk about my sexual abuse and about the things that I've been through in my life and all of the violence and my childhood and going to jail so many times and stuff. And I believe that that was divine. Like there is, there is no mistake. Like that blood clot, there was no mistake with that. Like just this weekend, this past weekend, I fell, hit my head and had a concussion for three days. There's no accident in that. Like 
I, and I know now that I have the tools to be able to reflect, to get the answer. And for me, the lung thing was really about facing a, my feelings around mortality and B me like breathing life back into myself Mm -hmm. and really prioritizing me, my divine feminine, my role as mother, all of those things. So it's interesting because those were literally my exact words were, huh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what else are you going to, I mean, I call it full commitment, you know, it's, 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 it's the full grace. I mean, I remember when I was molested as a kid and I went to my stepmom and she didn't believe me. I went to my dad. He didn't believe me. I was like, okay, so the male babysitter is molesting me over and over and over. No one's listening to me. Okay, fine. And then I grew up and I became like a skater punk kid and ended up like, you know, wanting to throw a party and leading a bunch of people to a house. And, and, and from there, all these people went into the house and had a party and the house burned down. And I ended up going to jail. And, you know, it, it was what it was. It's like every single thing from my drug abuse to my alcoholism to me being molested. Everything to me was an opportunity to go deeper within myself and to be able to utilize the pain as a swimming pool, as an ocean in which to, to, you know, to go in and observe the landscape of this ocean in its many depths and its, and its highs and its lows and be able to, how am I treading water in this, in this environment and being okay with the deepness of that void and not be beating up on myself or telling myself I'm a bad person or telling myself that you know I'm this horrible person and I can't be the spiritual being because I went through all of these things. And instead of utilizing that the liquid in which I'm swimming in is this, it's, it's the womb of, of the collective um, you know, shadow. Yeah, and you talk I, about that in your book, that, that womb analogy. And I, I love that. I also think, um, too, because there's a lot of people in my community that I know feel have these same sentiments that the challenges that they've been through are gifts. And a lot of us are in recovery. And I definitely want to dive into that in a moment, too, from alcohol or, or, or substances. One of the more recent revelations that I've had is that I hold, I've been holding on to my story and it's having negative effects on my overall mental health and well-being because I feel like in order to justify the choices that I made that led to my arrest, that led to my addiction and the behaviors that come along with that, I have to hold on to the story that I was, that the reason that that transpired is because I had no coping skills because I was so abused throughout my childhood. I mean, we don't have to get into all of that, but it was interesting because I had this epiphany moment just three days ago where I go, Alexis, the experience, the negative experience, negative in quotes, was the work. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to justify it. You don't have to. It was the work. The experience was the work. You made it through it. You had the clarity and you don't have to hold on to that anymore. Right. And I, I want to add to that because I don't like to use the word work so much as more of like realizing that when I was addicted to 
to crystal meth and I was addicted to alcohol and cocaine and all these different things. For me, it wasn't even an addiction. It was my medicine. It was, it was was like, I loved it. I felt great. It, it was the best time. I had the best conversations. I was like, I felt like every person I talked to, I had a past life with, you know, like I felt so good. Even when I was being molested, like, even though he was doing things to me, one part was like, this is horrible. This is happening to me. And I feel violated. Then there was this other part that was like, wow, this feels really good, you know? And so what I learned in like my process is to be okay with the part that felt good and not feel guilty and shameful that I enjoyed taking drugs. I loved drinking. I loved keeping myself, you know, inebriated. And I loved having someone take me and do things to me sexually where I wasn't getting the love and affection from my own family. And it was like, it was just like, for me, it was just another way of getting touched and experienced. And, and so the moment I took off these judgments and these dualities and I started to look at this feel good. What was the feel good for me? And, and that feel good that we all, that we like to say, this is abuse and this is abuse. But if we think about it, what keeps someone in an abusive relationship is because there's some part of them that is getting something that they enjoy. The part that sucks, the part that doesn't feel good of having someone, you know, beat you or terrorize you or whatever. Those are the things that you are here to acknowledge that, the feel good has to be transformed. It's the feel good. It's the, oh, this was my medicine and it felt really good, but now I can create a feel good that's actually healthy and productive for me versus destructive and, 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 you know, and, and, and dismantling for me. Heroin, for me, the first time I shot up heroin, it was the first time I smoked heroin, the first time I used an opiate, all of it. It was the everything. Like, so... My abuse was very violent and my rape being started when I was five. So none of that felt good. I didn't have like a way to like different, like I didn't know what was happening to me. The drugs though, I really relate to that because I did, I loved it. And it worked for me for a really, really long time. And it was my medicine. It was my medicine until I found a new medicine. And I think that that's whatever path you take. I don't know if you ever attended AA. I did for a little and then I moved on because of some of just aspects that I can't really get behind. Um, But finding that community, that community was my medicine. That community was my medicine. Tapping into my spirituality again, like having a relationship with a God that's not separate from me mm-hmm. that all of a sudden became my medicine. And I was like, what? well, now I don't need that other medicine anymore. Can I challenge you on something? If that's okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to, you were saying, when did you first experience, what was it? The rape and something that you went through, sexual stuff that you went through? Yeah. So um, there was an older sibling. He was 10 years older than me. So he was about 14 or 15 and I was about four or five when it started. Okay. So you have what we call a cognitive part of your being that remembers every type of situation that has ever happened to you. Right. And it's stored in there. And then the fact that you actually are choose to be aware of your feelings at that time is governed based on your either one going into it with judgment or going into it with acceptance. Right. And so if we let's, let's go back for a moment and just look at that, because here's the thing. And the way we look at it is that 
every situation that happens to you, every situation, and I know it's challenging for people to hear when they're in the human biological spacesuit. They're like, so you mean that person was meant to be killed? You mean that person was meant no, to I be raped? I wholeheartedly agree. No, no, there's no, there's no argument there. Even, and I know this is hard and people are going to go, whoa, but with the George Floyd and everything that's happening, like divine right action. And I wholeheartedly believe that when we choose to come here, we know what we need to go through in order. I don't have that. I don't feel it all victimized. I feel sad for that little girl. Like when I think about those moments and the fear and the, the anxiety, the, the years of anxiety, the anxiety, I like who still feel to this day around that I feel sad for, but like, I agree with you that like, I knew when I came here, what I would, the family I was coming into and what was going to transpire. Right. So let's go back to the, how you see how you, the sadness of the little girl. Yes. Right. So this now ask the little girl, I want you to ask the little girl, say soul. I want you to ask the little girl, is she sad because of the construct of the way the world makes her perceive what happened to her? Um, <laughs> the answer is yes, because the thought pattern that developed is that I'm dirty and bad. Exactly. And that's what causes the pain. And that's what causes the abuse. It's the, I, it's the construct that we're built in. When I went through what I went through with that man in that bathroom and the things that he did to me when I was five years old, it, when I said it felt good, what I was talking about was it felt good to dive in to the energy of these energies of human nature so that I can take them into my vessel and then utilize that to be able to help the masses, right? But the construct of reality that has been developed makes me keep that little boy in hurt mode and shame mode and your disgusting mode and your dirty mode and all these things and it's your fault and all these things because the construct that we have on the planet is based in duality and it's based in these very strong clauses of right and wrong which are completely subjective to each person's culture and each person's upbringing and observation of creation. We talk about that a lot on here, the the puritanical society ideals and how they're like hurting and killing people. That was really <laughs> great perspective. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Because the truth is that as a result of those feelings of shame and dirtiness and also curiosity, like that I was maybe exposed to too early, like, but that was coming anyway, right? Because inherently as human beings, we're like sexual in nature. And I think that it's the shame and those feelings that then led me to go out and continue to victimize myself and to hurt and abuse myself because I felt so shameful around it. Right. And you didn't have the the tribal protection of showing you the gift of that experience. So, right. So the gift is like in tribal culture, you let's say for instance, there's a woman and she's raped in the village. The shaman goes and takes that woman and brings her before the tribe and then acknowledges those who raped her in the tribe and thanks them as they are acknowledging what they did. Because what happens is now that woman has a new marking. 
And now the shaman shows the woman that the pain she's gone through, the hurt, the violation is an opening doorway for her to become the next medicine woman or her to become the, the next uh, uh, seer in, in the community, for her to become the next healer. So there's, there's, there's all of these different um, energies that are taking place that, get, that activate certain things. And because of what you went through, it has made you more sensitive. So you can send you, when someone goes to uh, sexual molestation, rape or any of these things, they build um, an acuity to subtle frequency vibrations of nuances and energy exchanges. That means that you can sense energy in the most smallest tiny fragment, even smaller than that. And you can dial into that frequency if you choose to, or you can expand yourself within that frequency, which most people don't have, which we call it, it, it means being charged. You've been charged. So a charged spirit is a spirit who has gone through some form of abuse, rape, molestation, something that has created some form of trigger in their system that community would, uh, uh, in Western community would see as you know, really bad, whereas in spiritual community would say, okay, it happened, but let us, not, uh, like, let us not torment the soul with shame and blame and guilt, and let us use this as an opening, a doorway, an invitation into a different part of the human psyche of magic and, and spirituality and psychic ability and being a seer or being a sage, being a medicine, being a shaman, you know, all of these different things and so much more. It's, it's really quite amazing what, what we have done as human beings on a conscious level without really looking at the levels of intellect and the backdoors of intellect that are created and stimulated in the invisible planes that are creating a whole new understanding of perception and reality becomes then dissolved because reality is only present by those who construct it and hold it with their thoughts, their minds and their words and their need to say, this is what it is. And if you don't follow this reality, this is what this means. These are clauses of reality, but they are not reality. I wanna go back to your death because I yeah. think that's so profound. Yeah, so after I was in the gurney, they took me to the hospital. Uh, my friend came in, you know, he was next to me, and the nurse told me that there was no available room, so they had to leave me out in the middle of the hospital floor near the, near, near the station where the nurses are. And uh, my friend was talking to me, and as he was talking to me, his voice kind of muddled out, and there was this, there was this other voice, this woman, and she told me that I was going to die and cross over and that that death was there and ready to take me. And, and it was all going to happen very quickly. And within, I'd say maybe a couple of minutes, I looked at my friend and he, I, I said, I'm really scared. And he said, why? I said, I'm going to die. And he said, uh, no, you're not. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. I'm going to go get a doctor. I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't want you to leave my side. Like I'm going to, I'm going to die and it's going to be soon. And I don't want to die alone. Like that was always been my fear of dying alone. And I get it now. I get it. Now I get it. I'm okay now with it. But back then I wasn't. And um, within like, I would say maybe a minute, I started feeling knives stabbing me all over my body and like the most painful, excruciating pain I've ever felt in my life. And I could feel every part of my body twisting and turning inside. 
and my whole body was going into a shutdown and I started having a seizure again. And this time I felt like I couldn't breathe and my lungs had collapsed and my body's organs were shutting down one by one uh, because my potassium levels were really high because my kidneys have gave gave out. So my potassium levels shot up to a 10.6 potassium and um, literally my entire organ system, each muscle shut down one by one and I can feel them all turning off. And it was each as each one gave off, it was more and more painful because they stopped functioning. I could feel my body shutting down. And the last one was me just there and my heart. And that was the last muscle. And I remember just like pounding my throat because I couldn't breathe. And they were doing everything they could. They were, you know, putting breathing tubes in my, and all these things. And, um, and I just remember that there was just this light and liquid and water. And it was like moving all around my body. And all of a sudden it just went in me, just like with liquid and it pulled me out of my body. And I could see them, you know, and I could hear them like saying he's crashing and they were like shocking, doing all these things to me. And I was out of my body and um, I saw my um, grandmother and my, 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 my grandmother's sister. And uh, they told me I had to go through another experience, but I'm not alone. And all of a sudden I was in this black kind of liquid and it was like all these colors that I've never seen before. And then all of a sudden I was standing in, in the hospital room watching my mom give birth to me and then experiencing being in her womb while she was giving birth to me and feeling the, the water and liquid and everything and my body being squeezed out while watching it simultaneously and then watching myself watching it simultaneously and then watching all the different things going on simultaneously of each person, including the doctor and everything, and then watching what was going in the hallways and outside the hallways and it just all of it, you know, just being aware of it at the same time as it's all happening in one experience. And then going from that to every single incident that took place in my life, watching it, watching myself, watching it, experiencing it while watching it and watching myself experience it and then watching myself watch other people experience it and then watching other situations going around it, all happening simultaneously, each point all the way up until the point I died. And then there was this, this message of like, do you accept it or do you not accept it? And I accepted it and this light came and it was like this beautiful liquidy light that was, I could feel it moving through me. And I was in this beautiful ocean and all this water. And it was like, I ended up on this beach. There was this woman waiting for me on the beach and she looked at me and she did speak. And she was just so amazingly beautiful And she walks over to me and she said, I know you have a lot of questions, go ahead. And I said, why do humans suffer? Why do we go through pain? Why do we go through illness? Why do we do like, why is there war? Why are people hurt? Why are women being oppressed? Like every type of thing you could imagine I asked. And at the end of it all, before I even finished the last thing I asked why on, I got this clear message that she said to me, because of malfunction in thinking. There was no other message. It was just malfunction in thinking. And it all made sense to me. And I saw in that moment, every human being on the planet thinking against themselves and against each other. 
And then it made sense to me and I got it. And then she asked me if I wanted to have um, a body or I didn't have to have a body. I could stay in the consciousness and just observe everything and interact with people without having a body. And I said, I would like to have the body I had before. And I remember my hands appeared and I touched them and I couldn't feel the bones. And I touched the sand and I felt the sand. It was the most amazing feeling. It was like the best, everything I could imagine. And it was like this sky that had like music and it was like everything was warm. And it was like the best blanket, the best food I've ever ate, the best conversation I've ever experienced, the best lovemaking I've ever had, like all wrapped up in one sensation. Every time I took a walk on that beach, every time I touched the sand and I asked her, where are we? She said, you're at the beach of remembrance. This is the place where people come and go before they go to the other worlds that we've dreamed into creation. And I thought... What do you mean we dream into creation? She said, we are at the center of creation. What you know people call heaven or nirvana, this is where you are. And we dreamed every world into existence together. Each of us playing a part in the creation and the construction of all things throughout the universe. And I was just like, not even arguing about it. I just was like, yeah, I remember that. It was just all this memory. It was just like all coming back. And she goes, all your memories of this place will come back to you. You're still, you're still, you know, processing the consciousness of where you were to your journey of where you really are and you exist in all places. And then I started acknowledging myself existing in other planets, in other universes, as a woman, as a different type of being, as a, as a, as an animal, as a plant, as all these different things I was existing all throughout the universe while being in the inner plane of what people call heaven and nirvana at the same time. And then she took me to the place where there was a more communal area. I, I could say, I would say for the lack of better words, it was just a place where everyone was just having fun and laughing and talking and doing art and flying and dancing. And people were, some people were eating. And I said, you can eat here. She goes, you can, anything you, you could imagine you can have here. You can swim, you can fly. If you don't want this body, you can change to any shape or form you want to be in. There is no rules here. This is for you to enjoy. And I said, well, how is this place? How come there's a park with grass and this waterfall and stuff? She said, because everyone here has created it together. It's everyone's dream of what they believe this place to be. And that's what it looks like for each person. And it was just the most amazing experience. And I got to visit family members and a friend of mine. One of my friends came to see me. Um, his name was Josh Yortz. He died when I, a long time ago. Um, I heard he had got into a car accident. And he came and a bunch of other family members came and friends that I lost when I was a kid came. And, um, and then I was having all this fun. I was just every day, which seemed like a, a perpetual day. It was just one activity after the next. You could do anything there. You could turn into a zebra and run free through the nature if you want to. And everyone has their own universe there where you have your own heaven, as you would say. And then they asked me, would you like to go back to earth or do you want to stay here? And I asked them, you know, as much as I love it there, I really feel like I want to come back to earth. And they said, yes, you want to let the people know what you experience. You want to let them know the truth. And I said, I can't leave my brothers and sisters behind on a planet that has been inhabited and enslaved. And they think that they're free there and they're suffering and they're, this is not... I can't do that. So I have to go back. And they told me, would you like your memory erased or would you like to keep it? 
And I said, I would like to keep it this time. And they said, if you keep it, you know, this place will always be aware. You will always be aware of this place. And the more things get challenging on earth, you'll, you'll have a part of yourself that might want to come home and you'll be stuck in that space. And you're going to have to make a decision to always stay grounded on earth if you want to stay on earth. And I said, I understand. And I was taken back to the beach in remembrance with along with a other bunch of other people who decided to come back and other people who are making their first visit to earth. And we went into the water and the water turned into light and we were going through these stargates. And I remember passing by other galaxies and I remember I could slow motion it and then speed it up and then go again. And then I came upon earth and all of these other planets and all these hidden planets outside of earth that no one can see because they're cloaked. And I saw earth and it was just this moment where I could see all the other souls going with me. And then I just started like a shooting star started falling towards the earth. And I remember going back, I could see the city, I could see the hospital and I could see my body and I went back in my body. And I remember I couldn't see and I could hear this voice talking and it said, uh, he's back, plug him back in. And all of a sudden I heard like these high pitched sounds like and then all of a sudden my eyes popped open and they were shocking me and they took an adrenaline shot and I could feel like fire in my veins. And I remember just throwing my body like up and they were like, we got him. And they were putting this tube down my throat. They're like, stay calm, stay calm, Mr. Barrett, stay calm. And they're like, you're, you've been, you're paralyzed. That's why you can't move your legs. And, you know, and they were like, and he's, he's, he, we're losing him. We're losing him. And I remember just for going into freak out mode and I could see everything. And then I was, I was, I was in the, I was just remember being in the hospital, walking around the hospital, watching people visiting me. And I was in a coma for about a month and, um, and I saw myself like in hand restraints. And I remember standing by my bedside, looking at myself and family members and friends and different uh, students that I've trained who are in remembering who they are by my bedside, telling me, please, Shamandur, please don't die on us. Like, you know, and I saw all of this. And then I remember the day that uh, my body, there was this bright light in my body and I went into it and then I opened my eyes and I was in the, in the room with tubes everywhere and the doctors telling me that I'm brain damaged and paralyzed and I'm not going to walk again. And my, my kidneys are destroyed and, you know, I'm on life support. And I just remember listening to all these things and yeah, it was, it was definitely um, an experience uh, I would say, but also a necessary one. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there was a moment when you finally said like yes to yourself like I'm not gonna live like this I'm not gonna be paralyzed I'm not am I correct in that I I believe I remember yeah so you know my dad was there my mom was there and the doctors were saying that I was I had 25 blood clots in my body um, they, they had signs all over the room. Don't touch me because of the blood clots, mm-hmm. because people tried to come and massage me and do oming and chanting and stuff, which was really sweet. And, uh, there was letters all over the wall. And I remember the doctor saying that, you know, we have to take him off life support. My dad was talking to my sister in the room about, you know, getting me a casket and how kind of funeral I wanted to have. And I remember there was this voice 
in the room with me and it was like, why did you come back? Why do you want to help the people so much? Do you actually think they'll listen to you? And I remember this other voice was talking to me and it was like, that's the darkness. That's your brother and sister who's, who has chosen to turn away from the light. They don't want you here because you um, have the ability to remind people who they are and they're trying to get you to leave. Now you have to listen to my voice and you have to only listen to my voice and block out any other voice. And I said, okay. And it said, you can pull yourself from this, but you have to make a decision that you have the ability to do so. And that was when I did, I made a decision. And this voice said, tonight I will teach you how to breathe again. And by tomorrow morning, you will get off life support. And that whole night, it taught me how to breathe. I was in so much pain. I couldn't breathe. It was this fluid filled up in my whole lungs and everything. And I found a way through that fluid to get air. And I kept, it was so painful, but the voice kept like, it was like a coach. It was amazing. It was like saying to me, keep going. You can do this. You're powerful. And then it would tell me to say certain uh, things in my mind to, to make myself even stronger. And I would say them in my thoughts. And then all of a sudden morning time came and I was breathing. And that was the first step. And then the second step was, you know, me being sent home. They wanted to send me to a hospice, but my sister was like, no, I'll, I'll move into his house with him. I'll be his nurse. I'll take care of him and we'll hire a nurse around the clock and I'll take care of my brother. And they brought me home in a wheelchair and I lived in a wheelchair. And I remember being in the wheelchair and being told I'm not going to walk and that doctors were looking at me in the hospital. And I was like, what? And they're like, you're a miracle child. How is it possible that you had a 10.6 potassium when no one recovers from that? No one comes back from that. And here you are having a conversation with me, whatever kind of power you have or whatever it is. And the doctor leaned against the wall. He's like, how are you doing it? I said, God, he goes, God, really? I said, yes, God. He goes, that's your answer. I'm like, yeah, that's my answer. He's like, okay. All right. Well, God. Okay. Hmm. All right. I don't know what to say to that, but you know, I'm a man of science, but I'll just, you know, I'll go from there. And, and, the, and the road back was, it was a long road. It was eight years, eight years on dialysis, uh, about a, almost two years on in wheelchair, almost a year and a half. That's including me learning how to get myself to walk and heal my legs and being able to deal with the brain damage. And then also I couldn't bend my fingers or my hands. So I had to have someone always feeding me and bathing me. And then I got to a point where I was like, I'm going to push myself to get to the stop sign down the street. And I kept pushing myself every day. It was like maybe two steps, but I kept doing it. And one day I got to the stop sign. I was like, if I can get to the stop sign, I can get to the next block. And I kept doing it and pushing myself. And with my walker, because I went from like wheelchair and then they started, my legs started slowly coming back with, my, with the things that the spirits were showing me how to bring my legs back. And then I, as I eventually, through my physical therapy and everything, I ended up getting into a walker. And then from that, I was learning how to stand on my, learn how to stand on my feet and, and be able to keep myself up from falling down. There are times it was so embarrassing where I'd just fall right down on my face, you know, and like my sister's husband would pick me up and carry me like a little baby and be like, it's okay. We all going to fall once in a while. He's like, but you can do this. And I had a lot of support. All my friends made a schedule of each time they were going to take care of me. Everyone did it in shifts. And during that time, I just spoke to the ancestors and the spirit spoke to me and they told me what to do. And I, I did it. And here I am today, you know, and while I was recovering, while I was going through eight years of dialysis, I was lecturing. 
I was doing a lot of um, focus work with, with girls who come from drug addicted homes. I was focusing on women and helping them and being able to heal um, ancestral wounds from the mothers that have been carrying from their abuse and just doing all of this stuff and not letting the world know. I didn't let anyone write about me or put any press on me. And I just kept doing this and dil diligently sticking to this, seeing six, seven clients a day and doing talks and having people come to my house and sit down for learning how to connect to spirit and how to get into these different things. And then one day this woman came and she's like, my name is Crystal Mears and I write for this thing called Daily Candy. And we want to do a story on you. We find you to be very remarkable. It's your story is absolutely breathtaking. And that was the first time I ever did press. It's the first time anyone has ever written me in press. I was so scared because I didn't want to be the shaman in the media. I didn't want to be the shaman that was out there because I thought it would take away my roots and my training and all that I learned. And I wanted to keep it real and raw. And, um, and then this friend of mine, Persian friend of mine told me, you know what, Derek? you're being selfish by not letting the world know you. Yeah. By holding yeah. it in. Yeah. I have a history of being in the media and had a very public downfall, which was heavily like ridiculed and all that. And when I got sober, I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to return to media ever. Like it is brutal. Yeah. I don't want to have anything to do with all of those people. It's so filled. Uh, with not, you know, not recognizing that like, I, and I always say this and people are like, what? I'm not like Donald Trump. I'm like, we all have a little Donald Trump in us. Yes, we do. We all have that. That's our like shadow work that we need to do. But I was mm -hmm. like, I'm never doing it. I'm better than those people. I'm not doing this anymore. And then about three years ago, it was like, I, through experiences, like forced into submission of like, no, you're meant to return. You're mm -hmm. meant to return and to show people that it's possible to get sober at 19, that oh, it's yeah. possible to heal, you know, from all of the trauma, that it's possible to be twice convicted felon and live an amazing life. Yes. It's possible to be doing all of these things. And so I said, yes. And oh my gosh, was it the most scary thing ever? Yeah, of course. It's oh, scary. Yes. The, oh, yes. And I still, I get hurt. I, I feel that sting every time someone leaves me a one-star review because they didn't like something I said. And I, I'm human. I feel that. But it's such a gift, which brings me, because I don't, I don't want to go over um, too much and I want to be respectful of your time to your book. Um, so Spirit Hacking came out in the fall, right? Early winter, fall, last uh -huh. year. Yeah, exactly. And I remember um, I was on a walk and I just plugged it in. I didn't, I, it was suggested to me on audible and immediately I started following you on Instagram. I'm like, I have to learn more, but you talked about this blackout period. You basically talk about what we're going through right now before it even happened. <laughs> and so for people, just a quick kind of explanation of the blackout period. Cause I want to get into the solution specifically the part of your book where you talk about clean up your damn mess, but yeah. the blackout period that we're all experiencing. And, mm -hmm. and like I had mentioned um, before to you, you know, we're, we are all sensitive people. We may turn it off or drink it away or use it away or sex it away or work it away or whatever it is the way we're doing, but we feel it. We feel the pain of our brothers and sisters all over this world who are suffering. It's all being brought up right now yes absolutely so you know the thing is when i write books i've only written two books in my life one my first book i wrote in turkish it took me two years because i had to learn a lot of the language 
And it was for the Turkish people because they were just being, the women there were being oppressed so much um, from the Muslim culture and so forth. So I really, you know, dialed in. And then whenever I do anything, it's always because spirit comes to me and says, it's time to do this. I'm not a person who like writes books. Like I know a lot of people who put a book out every year. I, that's not who I am. You know, I'm very comfortable just being of service in, in, in very, you know, um, not book writing ways, if, if I would say. And so when the message came to me very clearly, spirit said to me one day in 2020, there is going to be a great blackout that lasts for 12 years. And it's the start of the blackout. It's already been starting underneath the scenes. And they told me like all the different eclipses and the different events that were going to take place. So I knew all the events. Like I knew back in 9-11 in when I was in the windows of the world, I told my friends at the party, I said, this is the last time you're going to see this building because the spirits told me two brothers will fall in the city of great. And only, what I can only imagine is New York. And then it happened. And that was like the, the, the turn of these different events they showed me that was going to take place before 2020. So I really got, um, I got a book agent. I told my book agent about, I have this book I want to write. It's called The Blackout. I want to make it black. I want to put The Blackout 2020 on it. It's got to come out before 2020 or it's not going to make sense to anyone. And she went and she shopped it. And a lot of very niche uh, spiritual places, no names given, were like, oh, that's too much for us. You're so dark. We don't have, we don't, our readers don't like to hear. They want to hear about love and light and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, great. So everybody wants to be, you know, held in a bubble of, of disillusionment. Got it. Fine. But you're not for me. And my publisher, you know, I mean, my, not my publisher, but my book agent had said to me, you know what? Someone is going to come and get your message. And there are two people who came, but I decided to go with more of a mainstream publishing house. And I told my publisher, I said, this book has to be black. It has to be called The Blackout of 2020. He goes, no one's going to buy that book. You're going to see a book. It's going to be racially charged because people are going to think you're saying blackout, like get the blacks out and you're black. It's going to be a lot of issues. So let's not call it The Blackout. So I was like, okay, fine. So I was talking to my friend, Dave Asprey. He, I, you know, you, you're the biohacker. I'm the spirit hacker. So I'm going to call the book Spirit Hacking. And I'm going to give, I'm going to change all the shamanic teachings to spirit hacks and really make it fun and everything. But I'm still going to talk about the book. I'm going to, the whole book is going to be talking about this time. And so he's like, that's a good way for you to, to, to segue into it. Instead of having it on the cover, just talk about it throughout the whole entire book. So basically what the blackout is, what is the blackout? The blackout is a time where the magnetic charges that take place from the eclipses that we've had and all these different solar experiences have created this magnetic frequency on earth that is so strong that it's been pulling up all of the stuff that's been stuffed under the rug. And then, then spirit has elected certain social political people to get people to be honest about their anger, their rage, their hate, their jealousy, their racial issues, their all this stuff, all this women issue, everything is meant to be brought up. So right now it's a real shake it up to wake it up. So the first stage of the blackout is the big shake up. It's that everyone's gonna be affected no matter where you are in the world, everything is gonna be affected by something that's coming. And the first stage of it is represented of the plague. It's the uh, uh, ability to see our relationship to one another, how we've treated the planet, what type of words we use with each other, do we really have healthy relationships with ourselves and with others? Are we creating what we call sustainability or codependency? And so the first stage is the annual blackout. It's when everyone in the global world is going to be affected by something that is going to shut us down 
and make us go in and really look because spirit really is wanting us to take responsibility, which means the ability to show up with love. The second stage of the blackouts I talk about in, if you go through past in the book, I have a segment, it's under prophecy and it goes into blackout. But if you go a little bit further in the book, I talk about the racial discord. I go racism. Oh my, you know, and all these. So everything in the book is actually telling you the events that are going to take place. So in the book, you see the stuff about women, you see the stuff about, so there's a huge women uprising that's going to take place um, heading into next year. There's going to be um, earthquakes. Yeah, you had talked about that uh, you'd gone on and done a live um, and you were getting some pushback from some men on that live. And I think that that it sometimes when we're living, there's a couple of different schools, many different schools of thought right now um, when it comes to gender roles gender identities, and then also men feeling really threatened by women stepping into their feminine. And my response would be to that, we've been living in a patriarchy, and it's gotten us nowhere except for war, famine, injustice, brutality, racism. So it's like, it's not working anymore. We need to do something else. And they feel so threatened at the idea of losing, a you know, that power, I guess, would to summarize your life, which I was listening, I was going, yes, yes, we need more women. We need, I talked about this a few episodes ago. If anybody wants to go back and I'll put this in the show notes, I talked about my own feelings about rich people. Oh, wealthiness is the root of all evil and blah, blah, blah. And my friend challenged me and she goes, if there was more rich women on this planet, do you think we'd be dealing with what we're dealing with right now? No. If Jeff Bezos was me and I had billions of dollars, would children be dying and hungry in the streets and going to, and not having food? No. Wouldn't be happening. But it's not just it's not just women, and we have to make sure that we're we're really understanding what we're saying when it comes to women. It's okay. the activated women, because there are women who would allow those things because they're not activated. They are still operating in the idea that I have to be like a man and think like a man. And so therefore they've disconnected from that aspect of their quantum motherly energy that sees the all-inclusiveness of all things in order for us to have true harmony on our planet. The, the thought that comes to mind is those are the Karen's. All things in life come from storytelling. It all derives from the storytelling. So in shamanism, you know, if you look um, at the way the shamans are taught, shamans are taught by understanding story and what type of stories you tell yourself build. They're the building blocks of your powers, your intellect, your emotional intelligence, the way you perceive things and the way you interact with things and how you how you choose to, um, to either build an engagement or non-engaging things, right? So... What I'm looking at right now is not them. I'm not looking at that energy. What I am looking at is the human discord that goes deeper than race, deeper than women issues, deeper than any issues that we see. Those are symptoms. And those symptoms are just as important. The illness, the vacuous illness that we have inside each and every one of us that we're healing, which is so beautiful, right? Because we're so powerful. So we're healing it now, which is great, is this this aspect of I'm not loved unless. So the idea of I'm not loved unless has caused people to kill, rape, still, uh, go to war, uh, take over villages, pillage villages, kill people, put them into slavery, um, you know, abuse, uh, oppress women, oppress race, you name it. 
the idea of I'm not loved until. So what is love? Love categorizes in the idea of being valuable, seen, acknowledged, wanted, and um, you, that you've done something. So what is, what, how does consumerism get us to buy shit? By making us feel a depletion of the lack of, of acknowledgement, the lack of love, the lack of value, and the lack of being something important. Now, I know for myself, you know, what that looks like when, we, when people have this thriving to be famous. I go, why do you want to thrive to be famous? I can tell you firsthand, being a part of the royal family, uh, paparazzis and spies and, 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 and you know, private eyes following me everywhere, chastising me, making lies about me, going and doing all these things to me. It's not a pleasant thing. So you have to build a very strong reserve of spiritual countenance in yourself to be able to handle that. So when I'm with my girlfriend, we're always talking about how we have to um, help people get that countenance in themselves to not keep giving energy to the very thing they don't want to have energy. And so that's what we keep doing. We keep operating in what we call a reverse codependency. We are codependent in nature, but we keep creating the codependent nature by our need to keep putting power where power should not be put. Once we shift out of that through the help of the blackout, to the help of these people who are spinning the wheels of humanity and making everyone pissed off, once we see that things actually have to get all crazy for us to see what needs love, then we go in as love ambassadors and begin to piece the structures that actually make sense in society and leave the ones that don't alone. Yeah. And I think that the concept of all of this, guys, is, and this is something that I talk about frequently, is that like we have to become our own superheroes. No one else, no one thing, no nothing you can exactly. have as many sessions as you want with Shaman Durek. I, <laughs> I, I can't wait to have mine. I think it's going to be amazing. However, you have to do the work. You have to do your own work and, and how we're going to change. And I think that we have this whole thing of like, oh, well, they need to change and then it'll get better. Mm-mm. No, each no. one of us has to commit to doing this work you know, and I'm just so grateful that I found your book because it was such, you know, I've studied Pema Chodron. I've read all of the Eckhart Tolle. I've spent hours and hours in meditation and your book really resonated with me in so many profound ways. So I want to wrap with this and just say that um, everybody who is listening, I highly suggest his book, Spirit Hacking. I don't know if you have time for two audience questions or not. For sure, but, for sure. No. Okay. Let's, let's, let's right. roll it. Let's roll it. Let's do it. Okay. So, um, and by the way, I just want you to know I love you oh, and you. I see you and I honor you and I'm thankful for all the painful things that you've gone through to be able to step into who you are today and bring that love, that truth, that rawness, and that like, I don't give a flying fuck about what this looks like and how this is. I'm going to share it. I'm going to speak about it because that type of transparency is really allowing other people to grow and see and remember their power and what they're capable of. And I just really want to hands down bow to you, Queen, and honor you. And that's what this whole community, and I just want to hold space for everybody who's listening. I value all of you who I know are doing this and showing up to this podcast, sharing this podcast and experiencing this because we have lots of uncomfortable conversations. I say, you know, it's the podcast slogan is for people who want to wake the fuck up. 
Mm. That's what we're doing here. <laughs> so Delicioso. It's like, it's Delicioso. Like honoring <laughs> everyone who's listening to this, which sometimes it's hard. It's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. But we get to take radical uh, responsibility for everyone goes, oh, it's radical acceptance. No, it's radical responsibility for our own lives, for our own destinies, and for where we're going in this lifetime. Mm. So the two questions that I got, um, clearly these are people who have already read your book. One says, if you're hearing the negative voices, she specifically said like, oh, what if your husband dies? That voice, you know, that like the other shoe's going to drop. Yeah. Um, and you're you're going and you're pausing, asking, you know, spirit, are you like that, that there might be another spirit that's there or, or sending love and light and you're not getting anything back. She's saying, you know, if you're, if you're asking these questions and, and you don't hear anything back or feel anything back, are you doing it wrong? There's no such thing as doing anything wrong. So let's get out of the wrong factor because there's no wrong and everything you do is an opportunity for more expansion. So let's not get into the wrong. What's happening is you're afraid to hear the answer or to believe that there will be an answer. So the reason why you don't hear anything, it's never on their end. It's always on your end. Human beings are operating on an idea that they have to be safe all the time. And sometimes safety requires you even to not listen to the messages that come from spirit or from the messages that are coming from the sketchers who are telling you things to keep, to put, to bring more fear in you so they can feed off of your energetic field. So the thing you want to do is first you want to do is what is called confession. Confession means confess that which scares you. So the way you would do that is you would say, I am scared to hear. I'm so scared to hear, and I can feel this fear in my body. However, because I can feel it, I also feel it releasing from me and coming out of my mouth and throat and releasing from my body. And it feels so good to be open to the knowledge and the information of the spirit world. When you say those lines, you are getting out of purgatory. You are literally unlocking your own spell that you put on yourself to protect you from either something that happened when you were a little child that scared you when something went bump in the night. And now you're upgrading and up-leveling yourself to realize, hey, I hold the keys to every door in this labyrinth and I'm the one who built the labyrinth and I'm the one who orchestrated the labyrinth and I'm the one who put myself in the labyrinth. So I got this. Yes. Um, and then the other person, and I have a feeling that we covered this, but I just want to make sure their question, they're on the path of shamanism. Do you have any tips? Yes. So first tip don't say you're on the path to shamanism. <laughs> I don't know if this is a path. Is it like going down Dwight Street or you're down like Cherrywood Lane? Like, is there a path that says shamanism on it? I don't think so. Because the shamanistic world doesn't fit in that type of bubble. It can never fit in that bubble because shamanism isn't about the same structures that you learned in school and that institution that you would apply to shamanism. I always find it fascinating when people create shaman schools, they want to create it in this kind of like very same way that the school system is created, which is not what shamanism is about. Shamanism is a really wondrous world of magic and excitement and, and things that you would never think would happen. And so the idea of being on a path is already taking you off the path that you think you're supposed to be on. 
the greatest tip I could ever give you and fully acknowledging and seeing yourself as the shaman is to just be a child, be a kid. If you feel like coloring circles and black chalk on your living room floors and over and over and over, that is shamanism. Because now that's going, the spirit sees you're doing that and they're going to interact into that circle with you and they're going to learn so much magic just in that movement. If you wake up in the morning and feel like you have to laugh out loud and stand naked in front of a tree and hold a a bunch of tea and herbs and laugh at the tree, that's shamanism. Shamanism does not fit in any kind of box or square or any kind of label or some kind of structure that makes you feel safe that you're on your quote unquote path. It doesn't exist. Get ready for the wonderful willy world of shamanism. Yes. Tap into that fun, free child and enjoy the ride of the experience. Thank you so much. It was such an honor. Um, You guys can follow along with Sean Mendurk on Instagram where he goes live all the time. And I, I mean, you really are so committed to the community, which I think is incredible. I've also done several of your webinars. I've purchased your courses online, all of which are amazing. Um, I highly, highly suggest. And the book is available wherever books are sold. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, You don't have to thank me. It's an honor to show up here and to serve. I love you very much. And I am very grateful and honored for you to hold space for me to share with your community love and to be able to share with you and to listen to your stories that have enlightened me and brought me such understandings within myself and memories of things. You know, the the beautiful combination of the two is, is absolutely wonderful. This week's affirmation is, everything I seek can be found within. I am committed to taking the time to search my soul. And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, head over to the podcast app and make sure to subscribe to us, rate us and leave a review. We have new episodes every Monday and you can follow along with us on Instagram at Recovering From Reality or visit our website at recoveringfromreality.com. 